Welcome to the Sport Mind podcast series, where I sit down with world-leading guests and unlock the secrets to mental strength in sports. Today, before you dive into the episode, I have something special for all listeners. Are you struggling with self-doubt, overwhelmed by performance anxiety, battling inconsistency, or facing fear of failure in your sport? Are you looking to overcome these obstacles and conquer the mental game? Well, I've got just the toolkit for you. An ebook I wrote called Overcoming the Top 10 Mental Obstacles in Sport, which you can get today completely free of charge. This comprehensive ebook is a treasure trove of practical and actionable strategies tailored for athletes who want to unblock the most common mental obstacles. Each chapter offers digestible advice, providing immediate tools you can apply to enhance your mental game. Readers have been raving about the insights and the transformations they've experienced with this guide. Teresa from California emailed recently saying, Your guide is brilliantly helpful. I've just been getting into it and I'm truly excited to use it to help with the obstacles I face regularly. I wrote this ebook to be concise, punchy, and most importantly, practical for immediate application. And the best part? It's completely free. A token of your commitment to your mental and athletic growth. So click on the link in the show notes right now to grab your copy of Overcoming the Top 10 Mental Obstacles in Sport or simply visit the SportMind Hub by googling SportMind Hub. Equip yourself today with the knowledge and tools to face those mental challenges head on. Now, let's jump into today's episode and get ready to elevate your mental game to the next level. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to your next installment of the podcast series. Today, I'm delighted to have on the show Dr. Martin Turner. Martin is a bit of a rock star when it comes to his work in the field of cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, and in particular, his specialist field of rational emotive behavior therapy, REBT. Martin has won numerous awards on his incredible work and is currently a researcher at Manchester Metropolitan University. He achieved the Albert Ellis Award for research in 2018 from the Albert Ellis Institute, New York, to recognize the impact of his Frontiers paper, Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy, Irrational and Rational Beliefs, and the Mental Health of Athletes. This paper is in the top 1% of read articles in Frontiers, with over 70,000 views, and has been cited over 30 times. He also received the 2013 PhD of the Year Award from the BPS Division of Sport and Exercise Psychology, and won the Best Thesis and Highest Academic Profile Awards for his MSc studies. Not only these amazing accolades, but in 2019, he was presented with an Outstanding Achievement Award by the Association for Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy, AREBT, for his work in the field and bestowed upon him an academic fellowship of the AREBT. This is quite incredible, and I feel you're all in for such a fascinating and mind-opening conversation. We dive deep into so many rabbit holes, including REBT and the practical applications of this. Stoic philosophy and the power this holds in the athletic and life domains, how mindfulness lends itself to REBT, what disputing is when it comes to REBT, and how to access a state of emotional regulation when the pressure and stakes may be at their highest. To see and hear more from Martin, check out his website as well as his upcoming books, visit www.thesmarterthinkingproject.com. In the meantime, Please buckle in for a journey into the mind and how I think you may look at things slightly differently by the end of this incredible conversation. Dr. Martin Turner, thank you so much for joining me on my next episode of the podcast series. Um, I think a good place to kick off and start would maybe to give a brief introduction to yourself and some of the work you're currently doing. Yeah, sure. Thank you for inviting me. It's good to be with you uh, this morning. Um, Yeah, I'm Dr. Martin Turner, currently... um, working at Manchester Metropolitan University. Um, um, I, I guess I would describe myself as a, 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 pr- a academic, somebody who is ostensibly an academic, but is also a practitioner and has nice. done lots of practice uh, over the years. You know, My main kind of areas of interest have been how do we help people to uh, function and perform um, when the going gets tough, really, under pressure, under mm-hmm. times of adversity, when things... Um, you know, might feel a little bit pressured. How do we help people to perform, you know, under those circumstances? And that has uh, kind of driven the research direction that I've gone in, but has also been the subject of a lot of the work that I've done as a practitioner as well, as it probably is for many practitioners. How do we help uh, performers um, to deal with pressure and 
uh, to get through some of the many setbacks they'll face uh, as a as a performer. Yeah. So yeah, that's kind of my, I guess, specific interests as, a, as an academic and yeah. practitioner. I would say, yeah. Yeah, perfect. And that, that's why when, when I was doing some research in you and, and a friend of ours, Lawrence Halstead, connected us up and, and had a good chat with Lawrence. And what I like is is you, you bring the, the the papers, the journals actually to life and you're giving some tools to people. And I love that. I love that idea of tools because, you know, it can all sound great on paper and theory, but actually like putting it into practices is is really great. Um, so I think one of one of the big places to kick off and, and we'll obviously go through a few threads as we talk about this, uh, Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy, REB. Big, big subject for you. It sounds really cool concept. I've been aware of it for a few years, but really dove into it in the last uh, few months or so in particular. So can you help unpack this with me uh, so far? So REBT. I'll, I'll give it a shot. <laughs> <laughs> REBT, yes. Yeah, so Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy. This is something that emerged really in the 50s and 60s in uh, in New York as a kind of um, an alternative approach to probably you know, psychotherapy that was dominated by the Freudian mm-hmm. approach, particularly Albert Ellis, who developed REBT in New York, was a um, a psychoanalyst and adopted that Freudian approach, really noticed that it wasn't necessarily working in the ways that he would like it to. It, it wasn't as, um, you know, it was very long term, which he didn't quite like. Um, he was somebody who valued efficiency so kind of started to develop ideas around a new therapy, a new form of therapy, which would really become a family of therapies called cognitive behavioral therapies. Sure. Mm-hmm. And RBT is considered as the first cognitive behavioral therapy. And what Ellis really did is he kind of not only made observations in his practice with clients that he had, um, but also his reading of ancient philosophy and in particular ancient stoicism. Um, he was reading philosophy from quite a young age and he kind of blended all these ideas, um, ideas he got from his practice, ideas of stoicism, his understanding of psychology, mm-hmm. and I uh, put it into this, this kind of therapeutic approach, REBT. So what we have really is, is, um, kind of a therapy really from the fifties and sixties, but he's also steeped in kind of thousands year old, um, nice. traditions and philosophies. And then, you know, RBT has, has changed and morphed over time like everything does. And what we have in the modern day is, is quite a flexible approach that we're finding. And I mean, in particular is finding really, really useful within performance settings rather than in a, in a, in a kind of psychotherapeutic sense or a psychiatric mm-hmm. sense. I'm finding it useful just as a, it's kind of a, a performance psychologist. Nice. Um, you know, so yeah, so it's come out of the clinical space into these other spaces where we find it to be, to be of great use. Yeah, no, sounds great. And, and I definitely want to unpack a bit of that and pull on a few threads. Uh, in particular, I've got, I've got some, uh, some stoicism rabbit holes. I think I'd like to go down with you because, uh, yeah, I'm a huge fan of that as well. Um, but I'm thinking, where does, um, Carol Dweck's work on growth and fixed mindsets sit in or within REBT? Does it cross over? Um, any thoughts on that? I mean, it crosses over a little bit because there's this idea in, in REBT that it is sort of illogical to kind of globally rate yourself. What I mean there is that if you failed, then it's not necessarily logical to then um, make the assumption that you're a complete failure. Mm-hmm. So this idea of labeling the self as one thing is a very fixed mindset thing to do. So I'm a failure, I'm a success, I'm a bad person, I'm a good person, I'm unlikable or I'm likable. So it fits into that into that quite nicely. Yeah. I mean, from what we know about but those kinds of beliefs, they tend to be quite pervasive because they're very final and they're very extreme. Mm-hmm. And if you're an individual who, after one failure, really believes, like truly believes that you were a complete failure, then the chances of you succeeding next time around are diminished because you're going into that next encounter with diminished uh, self-efficacy. Mm-hmm. If you go into something thinking you're a failure, then the likelihood that you're going to be thinking, oh, I'm going to do well today is certainly diminished. Mm. So they do, they do cross over, but this idea of something being fixed definitely comes across in that, that idea in REBT, I would say. Yeah. 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 I don't know. Interesting. And, and with, um, REBT, does, does this make up again, you might not be able to put a percentage on it. So you, when you're working with high performers, would you say that is your, your model you go with, or do you borrow from other areas? Yeah. That's, that's kind of your, mm. your, your big kind of model. Yeah. Yes, I mean, and to be honest, over the years, um, so there's two ways of looking at RBT. 
you can look at RBT as quite a specific approach to dealing with very specific thoughts and beliefs, what mm-hmm. in RBT we would call irrational beliefs. Not that they're unintelligent or, you know, it's just that irrational means that they're just kind of rather extreme and rigid and inflexible. They don't, they don't have much logic. So the specific way to use RBT is to work on those beliefs. But actually, RBT is a much broader idea that allows you to work quite flexibly with a range of emotions, cognitions, uh, behaviors and, and kind of ways of being. So my approach would be, if I was to give it a percentage, I would say, I mean, 100% of the time, <laughs> okay, I'm nice. going, there's no need for me. There's no need for me to go in with any other approach than REBT because it's not super specific. It can be approached very generally and very flexibly. Mm. So if I'm going into a, a, a new situation as a practitioner, then I'm, I'm absolutely thinking in an REBT sense. Nice. That doesn't mean that I'm I'm always searching for irrationality. Mm. It just means that the 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 way the way that I'm practicing is coming from that that framework that 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 kind of foundation. And then I can go into lots of other areas from that foundation, but I still go in with that core foundation that helps me to ground myself going into a new experience, for example. Totally make, makes complete sense. And what, what I what I'm curious to hear from you and what I find interesting is this is applicable for all domains. You kind of kind of ranging from your elite level athletes to your weekend warriors to business execs, CEOs, husbands, wives, teenagers. Mm-hmm. Would you say it's a very applicable way of, I suppose, thinking and being and doing? Yes, I would say that. And, and even the work that we do with athletes, we try to get them to, to, to connect with their humanness. You know, that's one of the key foundations of RBT, I think. So it's not necessarily specific to any domain because it just rests upon these common factors of being human. And what, what does it mean to be human? Well, it means that we're fallible. It means that we're not perfect. It means that we're limited. Uh, we know the world is unpredictable. So these common factors kind of run through every domain. In every domain you can think of, even if it's a performance domain, we have limited people working within limited environments. Yeah. And therefore, we're going to face setbacks and adversity. And if you can respond well to that adversity, then you can function well. Mm. So it cuts across any domain, really, and any any human being, I would argue. Yeah, no, I love it. And so where does the... um? We're talking high performers now, and I suppose win at all costs mentality, like very outcome driven, like we need to make those sales, we need to win that trophy, we need to get the funding to be able to kind of continue our career. Mm-hmm. How do you get that balance? Because I don't know if you agree to this, but but when there's a win at all costs mentality, that can sometimes take away from the performance and flow and getting mm-hmm. the best out of yourself. So how do you use REBT to get the balance where, yes, winning is important, outcomes important, but actually to not let that hijack the mind too much? Yeah, well, there's a range of things that we could do. I mean, one of the main things of RBT is to recognize that you can still have important goals. You can still be outcome driven. It's just that when you place a want, a preference or, or a like, when you place that as a, as a, you know, as a demand, you put it on a high pedestal and say, I must achieve those sales and I must succeed today in, in, in the game. Then that's where we face some difficulties. It's fine to say, well, I really want this and it's really important to me and it would help me to get to the next level and the next stage and help me to get a salary increase. All of that stuff is, it's reality. You know, that might be the case. But as soon as you say, I want to, you know, exceed my sales targets and therefore I must, that's where we face a few problems because it starts to get into the realms of being irrational because just because you want something doesn't mean to say you get to demand it. It doesn't mean to say you must have it. And by placing that must on yourself, you you kind of aggrandize and hyper-importantize the goal to the point where you're placing pressure on yourself at that point, pressure that you don't really need to place. It's enough pressure to, to, to really want and strive towards an important goal without then applying demands um, on that goal, you know, sure. unnecessary demands, you know? Mm. And and is that then just like, again, I'm kind of getting into the practical tool way. Yes, you sit down with the high performers, you talk about it, you go back and forwards. How do you, I suppose, stop them then thinking like that when the pressure hits? They all of a sudden mm. they might have these behaviors where they keep and the habits keep going back to going, I really need this when the pre- I'm right here now. They understand it when you're sitting and talking to them. 
how do you deal with this in the moment? Maybe if it's catastrophizing, maybe if it's thinking of the result too much, any thoughts on that? What you do when you're working with somebody is you kind of develop develop tools that they can use within practice, but also what you're trying to do is to help them to shift their philosophy. So what I mean there is if my philosophy of life is that, you know, there are things that I want in life, but I don't, that doesn't mean to say I have to have them or bad things will happen. It doesn't mean to say they're awful. And if I carry that round with me into all of my interactions, all of the situations that I go into, and it's a real deep philosophy, mm-hmm. then I'm, I'm much less likely to place demands on myself and awfulize when I'm in that performance environment. Mm-hmm. So it's less about me using, you know, having irrational beliefs in everyday life. Then when I go into performance, now I challenge them. Mm-hmm. This is about helping you to shift your philosophy and gravitate the philosophy towards something more rational, something that's more consistent with reality and more logical so that you don't need to have that battle like when that. you go into the performance environment. Mm-hmm. Now, if you do have to have that battle because we're not perfect and we do sometimes slip into into these irrational beliefs and these dysfunctional thoughts, then w- one of the things that we kind of work with people on is to help them to ask themselves key questions. So what am I telling myself about the situation that is leading me to feel this particular way? Mm-hmm. And that core question is, it places the responsibility internally and starts the individual's process of, of trying to understand, okay, how do I restructure some of the things that I'm saying to myself in this moment, you know? So you kind of try to you try to help people, you try to arm people with the tools to use in a live environment. But I think really what we're doing in RBT is helping somebody to shift their philosophy. And when you shift your philosophy, you carry that with you into these yeah. situations. It's a much more efficient way to manage your emotions and manage your psychology in the performance moment. Mm. So what I'm hearing you saying, there's like a spillover effect. If you're using day-to-day life as your practice canvas, you know, you're going about, you know, going to the shops, getting stuck in traffic and you're having these irrational thoughts and you you can almost like practice it within there that by the time you get into this pressure environment, it's not such a big leap from, you know, what your, your default setting is in those situations to the performance environment. Is that, is that what you're, you're getting at? Absolutely. It doesn't make it doesn't make sense to me that you are irrational in 90 percent of your life. And then you would walk into the performance environment and expect yourself to be to be rational. Mm. So I think it's it's a it's a real approach to life. It is a life philosophy Mm. and it's not one that's it's it's not like uh, we're not trying to brainwash people to believe things that aren't true. But the, the, the rational side of RBT, the rational beliefs. They're just truisms. They're not controversial. It's not controversial to say somebody to say to somebody just because you want something doesn't mean to say you have to have it. It's true. So all we're trying to do is get people to align what they believe with reality. And I think in, in general, that's a good approach to life. Yeah. You know, outside of RBT, if you can align your beliefs with reality, then I think that's a good approach. Now, it's not possible. It's probably not possible to one hundred percent align your beliefs in reality and there's there's good reasons why that might not be a good idea all the time we do delude ourselves functionally from time to time but i think in general you kind of want to make sure that the beliefs and thoughts you have at least have some logic to them at least based in something that that has some evidence and some grounding otherwise you open yourself up to believing all kinds of weird and wacky things (laughs) that, that aren't necessarily going to help you in the long term yeah totally so um a couple of things came to mind when you were speaking there. Um, heightening your self-awareness is probably one of the big things, like because we can go about life and just and just be reactive to everything. And actually all of a sudden we turn around and 10 years later we go, oh wow, okay, I've you know, I've, I've not put any any kind of blocks in place. And it just reminds mm-hmm. me a little bit of that Viktor Frankl quote between stimulus and response, there's a space, and in that space yes. we can make a choice. So yeah. when we come to heightening self-awareness, what 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 do you try to get your high performers doing with that because I, I imagine that's like the first starting point isn't it you need to be aware of the thoughts and the irrational things coming mm. in so how do yeah. you go about that heightened self-awareness piece well the first piece of the self-awareness piece is to do what you just described there and, and encourage the individual to to understand we call it metacognition thinking about thinking you know mm-hmm. it's like how do i think about thinking and one of the ways that rdt does that is to use the abc framework where a is the stimulus C is the response, and B is your beliefs. Ah, nice. So, if we can help the individual to understand that framework as a first, as a first port of call, 
understand that it's not the situation that necessarily automatically causes your response. You have a part to play. Now, there are there are lots of ways that an individual can process a stimulus and can make sense of a stimulus that could generate many, many responses. Um, but my core philosophy and the core philosophy of RBT is the, the stimulus has to has to be perceived and made sense of to then start to generate the response, the, the emotion, the behavior, the performance, whatever it is. So we go through this narrow channel of perception always. Mm-hmm. So I think the first the first thing we would do is just help somebody to understand that piece. And and quite often with people that I've worked with, that's the only thing that they needed sure. from me. From that interaction, they just showing them that framework, they then say, actually, I know what to do now. I, I don't need to, to, to fully go down this path with you into RBT or whatever it is. Um, actually, just having that insight becomes an important component to their, um, to their preparation. They can then generate their own bees. Like, okay, okay, if it's not the stimulus that causes the response, it's how I think. Okay, well, I've noticed that. There's a, there's a bunch of ways where I'm thinking this and I tend to do well, and then I'm thinking that and I tend not to do well, so I'll just think this more than that. Mm-hmm. They can arrive at that destination themselves without me necessarily pushing them towards it. So self-discovery just through that ABC framework I think is really important. Mm-hmm. In terms of an indiv- individual gaining awareness, I think when you're working one-to-one with somebody, you're trying to be Socratic, you're trying to – Ask questions that don't require a one-word response. That's 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 certainly part of it. But also, you, you're trying to ask the right questions that help them to go deeper. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what were you thinking in that moment? What was it about that situation that was leading you to feeling anxious or angry? You're asking questions that place the responsibility with them and indicate that there's something inside them that might be contributing to the emotion. If they say, if they said, you know the coach dropped me and it made me angry. I would say, what was it about the coach dropping you that made you angry? That leads you a bit deeper. Mm -hmm. And then you you start asking questions about what were you telling yourself about that situation? Mm. It was contributing to the anger. So with your questioning, you're helping the individual to go a bit deeper all the while as a practitioner in the back of your mind, you have this framework, you know, that you know where you're driving towards. You're trying to get information about the A, B and C and you're trying to, connect those things and then when you have that information you can you can present it to the client you can say okay let's have a look at what we've discussed seems to be that you face this situation you experience this emotion but it Mm. seems to be these thoughts and beliefs that are contributing to that emotion in a meaningful way Mm. so and and, you know so it's so it's kind of you are you are trying to generate that awareness through the questioning but i also Mm. think the individual already has some awareness of what's going on. They just need to sit with somebody to piece it together, to put it within a framework and then they can go and use it, you know? Sure. And just, just staying with that awareness piece slightly longer. I love how you as the practitioner trying to massage that out of the person and you're trying to take them on a journey that you, you don't want to obviously dictate to them, but you kind of know which direction you want them to go and you're trying to yeah. make them say it in a way. But if we're talking about an individual that might want to keep working on their self-awareness and, and getting to know themselves better, I'm curious to know your thoughts on, stuff like meditation mindfulness journaling gratitude mm. you know sitting with your own thoughts and and doing practices yeah. during the day do, do you advocate for that oh absolutely particularly like, mindfulness is really useful if, if somebody wants to take an introspection into their psyche then that, that that's a, a quite a good thing that we can use mindfulness isn't necessarily separate to rbt as i said before it's a, it's a very flexible approach mm. it's about how do you apply that mindfulness the, the individual can kind of apply different aspects of different psychological approaches mm-hmm. and we can still comfortably be applying RBT. So mindfulness, meditation, maybe they want to do some deep relaxation. Mm-hmm. Maybe they want to tell you about their dreams, what they, okay. <laughs> it, this isn't, it doesn't mean to say all of a sudden you'll become a Freudian analysis yeah. or, or uh, you know, just because they're using meditation doesn't mean to say that, that, that's the dominant approach to the work you're doing with the individual mm. these things are just helping the individual to, to gain more of an understanding of themselves and they can then bring that to the sessions bring the information that they've garnered to those sessions and tell you what their insights are mm-hmm. um you know to the extent that we train people in, the, in these things it just depends on your 
your training and expertise as a practitioner. If you if you are trained in RBT and also training kind of mindfulness based approaches, mm-hmm. then those two can sit side by side in tandem, and it allows you to provide some nice options to the client as to what totally. the direction forward might be. Mm. In terms of journaling, I think that one of the key things with with RBT is when you're kind of asking people around what they've experienced and you're trying to get to the root of of some of their issues, one of the things that is quite tricky is to get them to think about a recent example of this happening. So one of the reasons we might want a recent example because they the, the client can provide a lot more detail mm-hmm. over something that is more recent. Um, and that can be a bit of a challenge. So often clients start talking about a general, something general that might have happened or this generally happens to me when, when X happens, I tend to respond in this way. Sure. The journaling stuff can be really important because as they go through the week and experience things, they can jot this stuff down. They can bring it to session. So actually mm-hmm. this happened and I started to think in this way and I noticed that I was becoming more anxious or I was in training the other day and the coach didn't select me for a, for a drill and I started to think this thing and then I started to disengage and things went downhill from there. If they can record this stuff as they go rather than, Maybe in the past they've kind of tried to ignore this stuff mm-hmm. because sometimes, sometimes, sometimes to regulate our emotion we kind of distract ourselves and just ignore the stimulus, which is fine in the moment, but it doesn't help you to learn from that experience. You have to engage with it. Mm. So I think the journaling idea can be really, really important mm. too, just around capturing some of that data when we're not able to be there as practitioners mm. and sort of use that in session. Yeah, I mean, with with younger clients where they are less capable of doing that metacognition stuff, less capable of saying, what am I thinking? Mm-hmm. Um, just teaching them to be self-aware becomes a fundamental part of the work because you, you're not going to get anywhere unless you can help the individual to become aware of some of the some of the thoughts they're having that, mm. that might be undercutting their performance. Mm. I would say with older clients or, you know, clients, you know, post-adolescence, they do have that skill set. Sure. generally and they just need to be directed and funneled mm. uh, and also to lift some of the fear out of actually engaging with those thoughts mm. i like that yeah and there's a bit more granular detail i might might kind of run a few little mini experiments past you about certain situations um but before we get to that the the glad you mentioned that journaling piece because yeah, I just love that idea about it slows the mind down. It also maybe goes into the subconscious, but you can marinate on that thing. Hopefully it's a, you know, you're not ruminating on it, but you know, throughout the course of a few days, all of a sudden it's like, oh, wow, I'm a few good sleeps, a bit of rest. That problem you might've been having can also maybe even just sort yourself up, but then you bring it to someone like yourself, you can really get into it. Um, so I've got to, you know, I, I'm sure you know about this, but what is disputing in the REBT context? I, I kind of, mm. I, I had a little research and, and the word disputing came up. Yeah. It sounds, it sounds severe, doesn't it? <laughs> I think, I, I think REBT does have, have, a, there is a misconception that it is very, um, confrontational and argumentative and the word dispute I mean that's literally what it means it's basically an argument you know but the key thing here within RBT is I'm not arguing with the client me and the client are arguing against one belief <laughs> okay so that we can generate a new belief that might be more useful and then we argue against that belief to make sure it's as strong a belief as possible so disputing and disputation RBT is about challenging our beliefs, challenging them. Where's the evidence? Is it logical to think this? Um, is it useful? We're making a utilitarian argument. Is it useful to have this belief? And, and me and the client are arguing against this belief. We're being scientists and saying, okay, where's the evidence for this thing? Mm-hmm. And then we're saying, okay, we'll start to weaken that belief, start to to, to weaken it through these these questions of evidence, logic, and pragmatics. And then we would help the client to generate a new belief that is anti the old one. Nice. So, for example, a classic example would be, um, you know, when bad things happen, it's not just bad, they're awful. You know, okay, well, a counter to that might be when bad things happen. Yes, they're bad, but they're certainly not awful. Okay. Okay, so, so it's a similar tone. It's in the same area. One is irrational one is rational one is illogical one is logical one's going to be useful one's not going to be useful um and then once you've had had that rational belief you assess that for 
um, evidence, logic, and pragmatics. And you, you only rest when you have a belief that meets those three criteria. Mm. I mean, th- there are examples, there are times where people might use an irrational belief and they say, well, it's helpful for me in performance, you know, and we can, we can kind of get into that a little bit with the client and, and figure out what's going on there. But I'm yet to come across any real evidence that irrational beliefs are a good thing. Sure. I mean, you might be able to use them in an acute situation exactly, yeah. for various reasons, but if you hold on that, to that belief over a long period of time, I don't think anything good's going to happen. Mm. So as a practitioner, you have to, you, you, you have to take, go back and forth there and say, okay, well, is there a way that we can use this belief in isolated situations, but mm-hmm. also understand that it's not quite true? Yes. Yeah. It's not reality. I love, I love that idea about being, being scientists running experiments on it, you know, kind of testing its, its rigidity or testing its malleability. Mm-hmm. And I really think that's a cool way to do it. But on that point about, um, irrational beliefs, using it as a fuel, there's actually a few uh, players and clients I work with that actually are quite good at channeling anger at certain mm-hmm. points where they go, you know, I need like this boost of whatever epinephrine in my body. I need to actually get quite angry just yeah. for like a little moment. And that can be quite useful, can't it? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, if you get that right, but again, being sustainable for that, you're going to, you're going to burn out pretty quickly if anger is your, your default setting. Well, if a client says to me that, you know, sometimes in performances I get angry, but I find it quite useful and it tends to disappear quite quickly and doesn't really affect me in my daily life. There's no reason for me to help them to reduce their anger. Mm. If they say I get angry and it's useful in my performance, but I also carry it around with me and it affects my relationships and affects my training, then that's a different story. So it's all about within RBT, the really important thing is we don't really have like good or bad emotions. It's not really about the intensity of an emotion. It's more about whether the emotion is serving me. Does it serve me? Does it help me towards my goals? Now, mm-hmm. you have to work with people to get them to understand what their goals are. If your goal is to be a better squash player, a better tennis player, a better golfer, then, okay, that's fine. But the client has to understand that that's just one part of their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, what else is that goal speaking to? Do they want to f- fulfill their potential as a human being do they want good relationships do they want to be content do they want to live a good life so that's a really important part of it because we can have lots of beliefs that help us in sport and as you said there we burn out we we sacrifice relationships and the individual ends up a really unhealthy person even though they're an athlete Mm -hmm. you know so within rbt we have that kind of philosophy of working with the human being not just the you know, one dimension of the human being, not just the athlete, quote unquote. Um, and that's important to bear in mind when you're applying this stuff, I think. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, well, what are they driving towards? What is the emotion useful for? How is it helping them in their performance? But also, how is it helping them in their life? Is it helping them to be a contented um, a well put together human being you know mm. have you ever come across clients and, and i've had these conversations where they just go forget that I, I i know what i want i want that result and actually i'm going to get there by any means necessary and i'm actually almost willing to leave a wake of destruction around me to get that yeah. I, I i think we both know that's not necessarily oh, yeah. healthy but yeah. you've had clients who come with you Absolutely. with that how do you, how do you work with that then do you do you do you try to steer them away from that or try to show them different options because that could be tough couldn't it I was leaving to it. It's up to them. <laughs> it's I, can't, I mean, I can't force, you know, all that we can do is make reasoned arguments and try to work with people to help them to see, you know, to try to align their beliefs with reality and, and see that, okay, there might be some downsides to this approach that you've got to your sport. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, um, often people are coming to me with a specific problem and that isn't the problem they're coming to see me with. Yes. Mm, you see what I mean? So yeah, yeah. This, this stuff starts to come out in the wash and then you start to understand that, okay, well, there's a deep, there's something deeper going on here. And we would apply RBT as rigor- rigorously as we, as we can. Mm-hmm. But if you have somebody that's just hell bent on, on, as you said, they're just leaving a path of destruction around them, then there's, there's really very little you can do. I would make the argument also that, that, um, I don't think we should try and save people who don't want to be saved. Mm, great point. You know, if, if somebody's really just, what, and for many reasons, some people do have a, a self-destructive mentality and um, th- then actually think there's an, an element of, particularly me as a practitioner, trying my best as much as I can with the individual, but then parting company with that person. There's oh. just, you, ha- you have to kind of, <laughs> there's a self-care element here. 
how much do I want to attach myself to individuals who are openly destructive? Mm. Now we can do our best and use our frameworks and our models and use our work and relationship with the individuals to try to help them. But ultimately the desire has to be there to change or to work towards something useful. If that's not there, then I'm, I'm not here to force people over the line, you know? Very good point. Really well said. Um, right. Stoic values for sports. Um, I've, I've, I've gone deep into this rabbit hole. I know we had a little bit of a, a email back and forth on it. So yeah, big fan, mm. big advocate, great way of thinking. I'm interested to know a couple of things, maybe your version of stoicism for sport, what you do for yourself mm. and your life and how it applies to high performance then. I think one of the biggest stoic values I take and I've taken forward and, and, and Often stoicism, and I'm probably guilty of this, often stoicism is boiled down to quotes. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like <laughs> Marx Aurelius said this, or Seneca said this, or Epictetus said this. But um, underneath those quotes are obviously a rich and deep uh, philosophy. And one of my favorite Epictetus quotes was, if it's not true, don't say it. If it's not right, don't do it. And I think that's a really, you know, as a philosophy that drives me, um, personally, but a philosophy that I teach athletes, I think that's really important. Mm. If you know something isn't true, then why are you saying that thing? And if you know something isn't right, then why are you doing that thing? And what that calls forth is these these kind of deep values that are nested within stoicism and, and deep values that drive our motivation and drive our social utility um, and can obviously drive our, our performance. Mm-hmm. So if there's a difference between doing something wrong or taking a wrong action and, and but not knowing out of ignorance what was going on. It, it, it's different um, to then do something that you absolutely know is wrong. Sure. When you let yourself down, when you're, you know, you're working towards an important goal and, and there's, there's small ways and big ways that you're consistently letting yourself down and dis- detracting from that goal. Mm-hmm. If you, if you know you're not doing the right things, then that's one of the things you can stop. Yeah. Equally, in terms of speaking the truth, you know, I mean, there are obviously warning, the big warning sign here is you can't just go around telling people what you think all the time. Mm-hmm. But I don't think people should, I don't think people should actively lie. I don't think that ends well for people. And I think it, it calls forth guilt. And um, I think guilt is a very dangerous emotion, mm-hmm. even outside of the performance setting. So that, that for me kind of captures a lot of my approach and how I work as a practitioner. If I'm, if I'm in a room, mm-hmm. it's a multidisciplinary team, coaches, medical, all the rest of it. I believe it's partly my responsibility to not say things that are not true, mm-hmm. you know, to yeah. not, to not say falsehoods as a, as a, as a minimum operating standard, don't say things that you know aren't true. And then as a, as the top up to that, and, you know, if you're somebody who can generate that confidence is to start to say things that are true, mm. you know, so the first step is don't say things that are untrue. Okay. Hold your tongue. Don't, don't just speak because you you, know, you have to and say things that aren't true, but also can you speak the truth? And this doesn't mean it's like a, a brave kind of, you know, you end up with these huge grand sweeping truths that you're trying to make people realize it's actually quite simple. It's, it's, basing your ideas on evidence for example mm. and, and when you work in practice only doing things where there's evidence for those things that to me is is, is, is speaking truth mm-hmm. you know it's when you're working with an athlete not just saying things because it makes them feel better mm. so you know it, it, it's sometimes asking the difficult question to yeah. seek that truth and, and, and to be open and honest with an athlete rather than just telling them things they want to hear because it might give them a confidence boost. I see, yeah. If you want to play the long game, I think that's a really important thing to do. Anybody can have a conversation and make someone else feel good. That's kind of how we interact with friends. When we're working as practitioners, we're not friends. We have a close relationship, but it's a professional relationship. Mm-hmm. And to me, how that stoicism comes forth is, is me paying them the, you know, um, paying them the compliment of being honest, sure, you know, and, and speaking the truth. So I like that, that to me is an underlying philosophy. And and in that in that realm of of untruths being spoken, maybe by athletes, possibly um, the the way maybe they're saying things or the way they're portraying things or doing things that aren't quite right in line. Do you think that comes from a deep rooted? Fear, fear, like fear of their identity, where they see themselves in the world, the fear of what other people think of them, you know, so they could speak untruths in a way, but it makes them feel better, but it's actually damaging underneath. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm asking that. 
Yeah, I see what you mean. I mean, I mean, I think often when I've seen this take place, it's because the individual has been institutionalised. They've been within a sport or organisation for many years, and they're just they're just speaking what has been told to them repeatedly over a vast number of years. You know, and so often they start to speak these untruths because mm. they are they are partly a product of their environment. If you add to that, you know, um, how you know how they were schooled, how they were parented, you end up with a kind of obviously a complex individual with all these influences, and they're kind of parroting this stuff because they believe it's the right thing to say and do, rather than always, rather than necessarily analysing how they interact with the world or analysing what they say and do. They've just done instinctively, mm-hmm. and they only really get to the point where they start to analyse stuff when they where they do hit a wall. And they say, oh, actually, the stuff that I've been doing isn't working. Mm-hmm. And then that's where they, they, they would come to me and say they've got some issues, some problems here. And often what you unearth is the fact that they, they've have, they've adopted these beliefs, but it's like they've always thought this way. They will say, I've always thought this way. You know, like, this is just how I think. I mean, I've all, you know, and but they get to a point where it stops them from achieving what they want to achieve. And that's when it becomes a problem. And sure. that's where the self-analysis kind of, kicks in you know mm-hmm. so i think um the untruths come uh, in part come from our environment yeah come from um you know come from things that we developed because they seem to work for a while so we keep mm-hmm. doing them take particular you know ritualistic beliefs yeah. if you're very really re- ritualistic before performance you have to have lucky socks and put your kit on in the right order and do very specific things that you've you've kind of been conditioned to do that. You did it. You did it once, and it you seemed to play well. So you did it again. And you played well again, and you kept doing it. And uh, but, but really, your performance is in some ways detached from that ritual. Mm-hmm. That ritual is a psychological preparation that you could mimic in lots of other ways. It, mm-hmm. it doesn't take lucky socks to get yourself mm-hmm. psychologically prepared. But they've developed the untruth that if I don't put this sock on the left foot first and then the right foot, then I'm not going to do well. They developed that untruth because of just this repetition of that behavior that has led them to believe that, that this must take place for me to perform mm-hmm. well, you know? Mm. So you know, people get into habits and, and, and that only, like I said before, that only becomes a problem when they hit a wall. Sure. And then you can try, you can, you can scale it back and say, okay, well, let's do some of this stuff a bit differently, maybe, you know? Mm. So that's, um, it's really interesting about the ritualistic stuff. Cause, cause when you really strip it down, it's, it's irrational beliefs. It's just like, yes, mm-hmm. that, that's sock on that way. But then you look at obviously Rafa Nadal, he's got his kind of famous, like where he spins his bottles, pulls his knickers yeah. out his butt yeah. and all that stuff. So basically like you said about fear, one of the reasons, I mean, there was some good, um, some really interesting stuff when you look at tribal communities and the kinds of things they do ritualistically when they go into more dangerous situations. So when they fish further out at sea, they would adopt much more sort of spiritual rituals um, because they're going into danger. And all people are trying to do is control something within a dangerous situation. So if we take athletes, for example, a very uncontrollable, unpredictable environment, I mean, if you're very confident that you're going to perform well, it still doesn't mean to say that you're going to ensure an outcome. So there's still there's always that that kind of unpredictability and uncontrollability within a, um, an athletic environment, you know, and in any environment really. Mm-hmm. So what people are doing is they're trying to grasp onto some element of control, and and the the one thing that you you can usually control is your kind of internal states. So I can control what I think. I can control my behaviour around the performance environment. And when that works well, it means that somebody has a good routine and and they, they understand how to get themselves into a good psychological state for their performance, whatever that state is. Mm-hmm. As you said before, it could be anger. For somebody else, it could it, it could be a bit anxious, you know what I mean? It doesn't matter what the state is. Am I good at getting myself into that state? And is that state helpful for, for performance? Mm-hmm. That's when it works well. When it goes crosses over is when it becomes superstitious and super kind of ritualistic to the point where if they're not able to then perform that ritual, then it's the world's going to end and I'm not going to perform well. And that's my performance ruined, regardless of all the training they've done, you know, all, all the knowledge they've developed over the years, my performance rests on my ability to repeat this superstition every time before I play. Mm-hmm. When it gets to that point, then I think it's not necessarily helpful. It becomes precarious. You've said something that I just want to pick up on really briefly. Um, again, correct me if I'm wrong. 
we can't stop that first emotion hitting us, can we? We can't stop that first emotion when we're in the moment, but we can then, I suppose, recognize the emotion, ideally work with it, reframe it, or have the kind of thought, it's just my thoughts, it's not me as a personality. Would you agree that you, you know, the REBT work, are you trying to stop that initial emotion coming in or do you have to just accept that emotion coming in? Yeah, I think we're not trying to stop emotion. No, so so similar to, uh, I would say that's where it aligns with stoicism even more as well. There's a recognition that, you know, there are helpful emotions and unhelpful emotions. It's it's not really a goal to be unemotional. This is where stoicism has been misconstrued. When we use stoic in with a small s, it means unemotional, callous. When we use stoic with a big s, that's when we're talking about the philosophy. In RBT, we mean stoic with a big s. This is not about being unemotional or robotic. It's about u- using that emotion. How do I express this emotion in the most functional way possible? So I'm going into a really important situation. And because of, of the importance to me, because of how I perceive it, it's generating some anxiety. Okay, now I've got a choice to make. Do I funnel that anxiety into something useful? Or do I funnel that anxiety into something not useful? Not useful might be a complete avoidance, I, you know, I don't do, I don't express myself fully. I don't do the things that I would normally expect myself to do when I'm performing well. Mm-hmm. Helpful anxiety might be just, just feeling prepared and, and, um, and making sure I've got everything right in my mind and really switching on to the right things. So we're not trying to dull emotions. We're trying to help people to utilize their emotion in the most functional way for their performance, but also their, their health. Amazing, really well said, and uh, yeah, glad glad that we just touched on that because I think that's important. Because some of, yeah, you know, some of the athletes go, "Well, I want to just stop that emotion coming in." It's like, no, 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 yeah, it's nearly impossible. But how can you actually welcome it and accept it? And yeah. then, like, which which you know, Stoicism talks about which handle are you going to pick up? You know, you can pick up one of two handles. Well, I think I think you know, sports psychology as a profession, performance psychology as a profession, used to have, or maybe it still has, has the reputation of, of being all about like positive thinking. And just, you know, positive self-affirmation, like you can do it, you can do it. But in reality, um, you know, sometimes you can't do it. So, you know, it's like, so what are you going to do? What are you going to do about that? You know, so you have to have a recourse for, for dealing with reality. Mm-hmm. You can't just delude yourself through life and give yourself positive affirmations mm-hmm. when they're not appropriate. Now, if, if somebody has positive affirmations and it helps them perform, I'm not going to tell them not to do it as a practitioner. I'm not going to say stop doing that. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that should be uh, uh only approach to sports psychology, just helping people to think positively. I mean, if you're, if you're going into a really volatile situation, the idea that you would experience positive emotion is, is laughable to me. I mean, you would experience lots of negative emotions, but it just so happens that those negative emotions can be functional. They might feel unpleasant, but they might be able to help you in this situation. We're not trying to, for example, we're not trying to change um, anxiety to happiness or anger to complete calmness. You know, we have to deal with the reality of the situation. Our emotions are useful. They are in, they're there to give us information and prepare us. Now, we can either utilize them in a in a good way or a bad way. Mm, RBT totally. and, and stoicism is about expressing them in, in a functional way that's mm. going to help us, you know? Yeah, I love that. It reminds me, I actually had a podcast yesterday with, with um, a guy who works as the sports scientist at Chelsea, and he basically described, said, the players hate the Champions League final. It's literally like the worst play. They, they just hate it. But actually, you spend their whole life to try to get to the Champions League yeah, final. But the emotions of that Champions League final, it's like no one really actually wants to be there. But actually, like, obviously, then they learn to deal with it and they learn to get through it. And it well, just reminds like, me of that. It's like uh, going for a driving test or going for a job interview. You, you obviously, if you want to develop in your career and if you want to um, be more mobile in a, in a vehicle, you obviously, you obviously want to pass the test. You obviously want to pass the interview. It doesn't mean to say that you're going to approach that specific interview with glee and joy. Exactly. You, you're still going to, there's still be some negative emotions swimming around in that kind of emotion soup. Mm. I, I think it's just a case of, of, of uh, controlling what you can and preparing really well. And, and then when the emotion appears and when it gets more and more intense, you can channel it. I think that often working with people, who have very intense negative emotions who want to just get rid of that emotion that just really 
it gives me an understanding about their relationship with that emotion. Mm-hmm. And as you've said multiple times here, it's partly about just acceptance. Like they, they don't have a good relationship with that emotion. They fear the emotion or they, um, it's, it's so intense that they, they, you know, they just can't, they just can't stand it. They can't tolerate that emotion. Mm-hmm. As soon as you help them to understand that they actually can tolerate it and they have been tolerating that emotion and that actually there might be features of that emotion that might help them in their performance, then it changes their relationship to that emotion and they stop thinking about avoiding it or getting rid of it and start thinking more about how do I actually use this as a tool for my, for my performance, you know, and, and then I think you're in a lot more powerful position. Mm, I love that. Yeah. The acceptance piece is huge, isn't it? And then that's such a, such an important word. And I think a lot of people deem acceptance as a passive action, but acceptance mm. for me is a real positive thing. It's like, it, it's actually proactive. And I know the Stoics are very big on, we that's accept right. this in and, yeah. and then we use it. And it reminds I me mean, of acceptance, little- acceptance, sorry to cut you off there, but acceptance in RBT, it's probably not the right word for us. So okay. the, because the acceptance you were talking about there, um, is the is the acceptance that we have in RBT. It's the it's the active sort of acknowledgement. This is reality. This is happening. Now what what can I do? Whereas, yeah, there is a misconception there, isn't there, that acceptance is about being passive and saying, well, whatever happens, happens. And and for sure, people have level criticism at RBT and at me because they perceive RBT to be saying, Oh, don't worry about it. You know, it, it's not the end of the world if you fail. So just whatever. That's not <laughs> it. I mean, you can really, really want to perform well and desire things really, really strongly and, and push yourself you know, to the limit to attain those goals. I think our argument is just as soon as you say I must do it, as soon as you, you're illogical and irrational about your hopes and desires, that's when we face some problems. It's not that we're trying to completely strip people of their motivation. And acceptance isn't just about saying, well, what will be, will be. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, you know, I outlined the ABC framework and said, okay, well, it's not just the A that leads to C, it's the B as well. That doesn't mean to say that we can't change A. Yes, we do have a focus on B in RBT often, mm-hmm. but part of the reason we focus on B is to help the individual to, to maybe change A. So, for example, you know, the coach is being disrespectful towards me. Okay, I have the I have the belief that they must not do that, and I can't stand it when they do. And it generates all this anger. Now, you're not in a good position to address that coach. You're probably enraged, and it might end up in a bit of a, a bit of a fight or, or, or at least words that are said that maybe shouldn't have been said. Mm-hmm. Now, okay, so I can help you to maybe sort of change some of these beliefs. So I want to be respected by the coach, but I don't have to be. And I know it's tough not to be respected, but I can tolerate it. However... I choose not to tolerate it. So the next time this happens, I'm going to address it with the coach. Mm -hmm. Using my anger to be assertive, I'm going to say, actually, I think what you said in that meeting was was not good. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I really disagree with how you approached that meeting. Now, the individual is changing the A. He's actively trying to get the coach to be more respectful, communicate to the coach that actually I'm I'm not going to tolerate this. So it's not just about, oh, it's how you think. And if we just change how you think, you'll feel better. No, no. We're trying to help you to adopt a rational philosophy so that you can address some of these things that are going wrong in your performance environment in the world. We don't just accept um, these things that are happening to us. We acknowledge them as reality. And then we say, what can we do about them? Mm. And that's the real big difference between you know, this passive acceptance and active acceptance. Totally. Really well said again as well. And it just, just came to mind a little bit. And I, I like to use some martial arts analogies every so often. It's, you know, it, like sometimes when you're in the martial and someone's coming at you and rather than you going back at them and trying to fight force with force, you actually use their force against them. You kind of, you let them mm-hmm. come to you and then you use their momentum and then you go back into them. And sometimes I kind of think about acceptance in that way going, right, there's this, this force, this emotion coming in rather than going brick wall against brick wall. How yeah. can I actually use that and actually flow with it and let myself flex mm. and flow with it. And I quite like that analogy and using water is always a good analogy for that. So, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Like the, I think, I think that there's, there's an element of um, people getting themselves into a bit like an internal battle when they're in the performance environment, mm-hmm. you know, when they have that, that kind of quiet space downtime. I mean, the sport that I worked in for many years was futsal where the substitutes are roll on, roll off. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, every few minutes you'd be back on the bench and you'd have time there to sit and, and potentially dwell on things that didn't go well or ways in which you're not in golf where, you know, you have huge periods where you're just walking around basically yeah, yeah. with your thoughts and in tennis, you know, the breaks between every couple of games. And what can happen in those moments sometimes is the individual gets into an internal battle mm-hmm. of of one thought fighting another thought and and kind of fight against this emotion, fight against this thought, fight against this feeling. And I think that's exhausting and that's energy that you would prefer to use for your performance rather than this internal battle. Mm-hmm. And, and this is where, for me, acceptance and RBT kind of integrate quite nicely. So we talked about disputation before. When you're in the performance environment, I don't, I'm not necessarily sure whether I would encourage an athlete to actively dispute when they're in the performance environment. I actually think it's probably more beneficial in a live environment to practice acceptance-based techniques, which mm-hmm. are, okay, it's just the thought, it's not reality. You know. um, because I think that, that that internal battle can detract from your performance sometimes because you, you, you find that you're spending energy doing that rather than spending energy on doing other things that you should be doing. Exactly. This is what I kind of said, okay, we try to help people to have that philosophy around their sport and around life so that they don't have to have as many of those internal battles but when the stage is set for that internal battle, I think that it, it's often a better plan to not engage, to, to not, you know, um, kind of meet fire with fire. Yeah. You just accept and, and, and let it wash over you. Exactly, exactly. But I think people get better at that over time, I think. It's mm. hard to, to recommend somebody does that when they're really experiencing really intense emotions. I think that... We people do need to be trained in that skill, and, and it, it isn't something you can just take off the shelf. I don't think. No, no, totally. Have you? Um, I'm sure you have come across a bit of um, George Mumford's work. He wrote that Mindful Athlete book. Um, he worked with loads of basketball players, um, Kobe Bryant, uh, mm-hmm. Michael Jordan, and he's got a framework which I would sound similar in a way. He calls it the four A's. So it's um, awareness, acceptance, action, and assessment. So you have that initial awareness of the thing happening. Yeah. You quickly accept it, but you don't accept it and be passive. You put an action in place mm. tethered to that. Um, acceptance, which I think is really cool. But then you have that assessment, whether that is sometimes in the moments of competition, whether it's a, with a coach afterwards, or like you can almost have the four A's can almost be like, like, like three seconds long, or they could be three months long because you could have that whole thing. And it's quite a nice model that you can flow through. We have that initial awareness, acceptance and action are tethered and the assessment comes a little bit later. So yeah, I think they, kind of I'm hearing you say similar things, I think. Mm, interesting. No, I've not come across that, but that does sound like it aligns. Yeah. And actually, you know, w- when you look at a lot of the approaches people are taking, I mean, I've taken the position of of call, calling a spade a spade. So I practice RBT. So that's what I call it. And when I write about it, I try and call it RBT. Now, if I'm trying to um, if I'm interacting with a performance environment, a performer or a performance director organization, I'm, I'm probably not going to call it REBT. I'm more likely to call it smarter thinking, which is my kind of how I, um, how, you know, that's how I kind of, um, I guess, communicate those ideas to those mm-hmm. sectors. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we have lots and lots of frameworks that, that are given, you know, very useful, like the, the framework you outlined there. If you strip that framework back, you essentially have CBT. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's really important for people to understand that that most of what we do, particularly in performance psychology, and I, I do believe this is still the case, most of what we do is derived from CBTs, this, this family of therapies that's been around since the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. As a practitioner, you have to learn to, to communicate that in the best way possible, which means you do adapt things and you do change the names of stuff and you've got to sell your services into places and i don't think you can do that by selling therapy Mm. you know so when i'm working with people i'm not i'm not i'm not necessarily calling it rebt Mm. i'm calling it smarter thinking Mm. as a way to make it more palatable but fundamentally what am i doing i'm practicing cbt Mm. we look at many of the sports psychology books that we have out there even if they're popular science sports psychology books ones that really made it into the mass market they are essentially applying cbt yeah. And that's fine. That's fine. I just it's just an, an awareness point, really. That when people go into these things, they have to understand that they're just making this model more usable, more translatable. But it is coming from this common pool. Yeah, 
totally really knows yeah. CBT, you know? Yeah. No, well, yeah, well, again, well defined, and then thanks for clarifying. So listen, you've been really, really kind with your time today so far. So I've got one or two real quick questions to finish because I don't want to abuse the time. No, yet, but, um, yeah, thank you. Uh, so listen, I know there's probably like a lot of deeper work that individuals may need to perform, but, you know, maybe in closing, any thoughts about some maybe quick wins? I know it's maybe not the most best thing here, but that people listening to can take away when they want to start to mitigate those irrational thoughts and fears that might be keep coming mm. up. Any any quick wins people can think about? I would say one of the quick wins is, is to ask that question. What am I telling myself about this situation that is leading to my emotion? That's such a fundamental question. It's a really clever question. I mean, I, I didn't invent it, so I don't feel bad for calling it clever. <laughs> but uh, it's a clever question because it, it, it puts the responsibility within the individual first Secondly, it tells the individual that it's not the situation that is automatically causing the emotion. Mm-hmm. So it's doing those two important things. One am I telling myself? And just have that as a mantra. You're going into a difficult situation, um, a difficult meeting, a difficult performance. Um, you know, what am I telling myself about the situation that is causing me to feel how I feel? Okay, that, that's first. Then secondly, once you kind of have, have access to that, about saying, okay, well, is what I'm telling myself necessarily useful for this situation? You know, I can use the example of um, when I came for my interview here at Manchester Met, um, you know, waiting to be called into the interview. Okay, what am I telling myself about this situation? You know, if you're feeling anxious, you're, you're, you, you can't fully predict what's going to happen. You've prepared as well as you can. Okay, what am I telling myself about the situation? And then you try to isolate and find the bits and pieces of, of what you're telling yourself that aren't useful mm-hmm. and the bits and pieces that are just out of this world and, and, and ridiculous and irrational. And then you, you start to use as a mantra more rational things, you know? So that might be, I have to get this job. I have to get this job. Well, I don't have to. It would be nice to, it would improve my life and, you know, but it'd be nice to get this job, but I don't have to. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, even just saying that, it starts to diminish some of the intensity. It takes the top edge of the anxiety, but you're no less uh, motivated to get to that position. You're no less energized to, to perform. It's just that now you've set things into a better order, you know? Yeah. So I would say the first thing is, what am I telling myself about the situation? And the second thing is, okay, is what I'm telling myself uh, rational? And if it isn't, can I think something and say something to myself that, that is more realistic, that is more rational? One thing you've said a couple of times today, which I just want to pick on the word have, I think it's an important word, isn't it? Mm -hmm. That, you know, I I have to get this or I have to do something. And just going back a little bit to what I asked at the start, Carol Dweck, I love one of her tools. She says, if you have the word have in the sentence, maybe change it to the word get. So Mm -hmm. I have to go and train today or I get to go and train today. Mm -hmm. I have to take out the garbage. Actually, I get to take out the garbage. Like, do you know what? You're living, you're living someone's paradise and let's, let's remember that. Let's, let's rebalance. So, I like it. I mean, in RBT, we use want quite a bit, but gets good, gets good too. And I think, you know, the, the idea that the power, the power of the word want is that it's, it speaks to some sort of intrinsic motivation. I'm doing this because I want to. Mm. And, you know, and if the individual struggles with that want and starts to think, well, I'm not sure how much I really want to do this, then it opens up all kinds of other questions around whether they actually still want to engage in what they're doing. And and there's been many athletes that I've worked with who I've helped to come out of their sport because they've had the realization that this is, you know, not the right environment for me. I'm not getting what I want from this environment. So I need to make a transition. Mm-hmm. So I think want is a powerful word there. And that's, that's obviously what we would try to help people to change their musts to. But yeah, get to is good as well, isn't it? I like that. Yeah, mm, yeah. I'm, I'm going to start to think about the want a little bit more and see when I can insert that. Because I think, yeah, that exit strategy for athletes is actually quite a big, important piece as well. Um, that I've actually got a few that I'm working with that might be in that realm that just can, actually, what do you really want? And I'm going to I'm going to ask the question in that way. Yeah. Um, so Martin, if people want to know more about REBT and maybe follow some of the work you're currently doing, where can you signpost them to? Well, the best thing is the best thing I can do at this moment is to promote my forthcoming book. Good, I was about to get there. That was my final question. Your book, your app, um, your website. So we have there, there is a tool that people can use, and it's a free tool called the Smarter Thinking Profile. So if you go to the smarterthinkingprofile.com, you can complete 
um, a questionnaire. It's relatively long. I think it's around 80 questions or something. So you have to be patient with it. And then at the end of it, you download um, quite a nice looking report that gives you an indication of of your irrational beliefs specific to performance. And it'll, it'll tell you where those rational beliefs are across different elements of your performance. People can do that. Um, there's the Smarter Thinking Project website, which has blogs and information about REBT and things like that. There's a, a couple of books people can access. There's one that's forthcoming called The Rational Practitioner, which is essentially how do we use REBT within sport and performance settings. Um, but also um, kind of wrote, wrote a book called Tipping the Balance, which kind of, again, is kind of steeped in CBT, but is all about um, psychological skills. How do we help people to develop psychological skills for their performance? Um, so yeah, those as well as being on Twitter and all the other things that we shouldn't be doing as much. <laughs> amazing. Listen, Dr. Martin, you've been amazing today. Thank you so much. This has been so much fun. I've enjoyed the chats. Hopefully you've got something out of this too, which I always hope for the guests coming on. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been great to chat to you. Really useful. Awesome. Take care. Thanks very much, man. Great. See ya. Bye-bye. Bye.